You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm your host, Iona Italia, and my guest this week is Lady Helen Pluckrose. Well, I have I have given her a title. Um, <laughs> she is a liberal political and cultural writer and speaker, the editor of ARIO magazine, and the author of many popular essays on postmodernism, critical theory, liberalism, secularism, and feminism. She is also notorious for her crimes against food. <laughs> Hello, thank you for having me. <laughs> Uh, and today I'm going to talk to you about the book you wrote in collaboration with James Lindsay, which is called Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender and Identity and Why This Harms Everybody. Welcome, Helen. Thank you, Iona. It's nice to be here again. So for inexplicable reasons, people seem to uh, constantly ask me when you, when the audiobook is coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know it's 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 out very soon, right? Yeah, it's already available on Google Play and Apple, but Audible seems to be dragging its heels a bit. Okay, well, for I, people are very strange because there are a lot of people out there dying to hear you read the book with your Essex accent. Essex, Essex phobia is your problem. A lot of other people <laughs> recognise that the value and that the distinctiveness of it. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> It seems to become kind of almost a fetish. <laughs> um, <laughs> so maybe we could begin. I think our listeners would be delighted to hear you read a passage from the book. Okay, I shall read the, the ending in which um, Jim and I set out some examples of ways in which people can stand up for um, equality issues, for, for human rights, for for liberalism, without having to go uh, via the social justice route. So this is our principled opposition example four. <laughs> we affirm that social injustice still exists and that scholarship on issues of social justice is necessary and important. We affirm the value of interdisciplinary theoretical approaches, including the study of race, gender, sexuality, culture and identity within the humanities. We affirm that many of the ideas generated even by the reified postmodernism of social justice scholarship, including the basic idea of intersectionality, that unique injustices can lie in intersected identities that require special consideration, are insightful and worthy of submission to the marketplace of ideas for evaluation, adaptation, further study, refinement and potentially eventual application. We deny that any ideas, ideologies or political movements can be identified as the authoritative position of any identity group, since such groups are comprised of individuals with diverse ideas and a common humanity. We deny the worth of any scholarship that dismisses the possibility of objective knowledge or the importance of consistent principles and contend that this is ideological bias rather than scholarship. 
We deny the worth of any theoretical approach that refuses to submit itself to criticism or refutation and contend that this is sophistry rather than scholarship. We deny that any approach that assumes a problem to exist, say in a systemic way, and then searches critically to find proofs of it, is of any significant worth, especially as a form of scholarship. We contend that if these methods are reformed and made rigorous, they could be of tremendous scholarly value and significantly advance the cause of humanity, not least the cause of social justice. Thank you very much. Um, maybe we uh, we could begin with um, uh, what first sparked your interest in critical theory in these new critical theories? I'm going to just disambiguate for everybody that this is critical theory with a capital C and a capital T. So we are not talking about the Frankfurt School critical theorists. I'd, I'd put it the other way around. Actually, I'd, I'd said they were the ones who had the one that was titled critical theory. And, and this is um, theories that are critical and they're critical in a more postmodern way. So they're, they're lowercase, but yeah, right, confused right. the issue. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but you are not talking specifically about the Frankfurt School. So please, everybody who tuned in to hear about the Frankfurt School, goodbye. Um, <laughs> How did you first become interested in in these kinds of theoretical developments and questions? It was it was two um, two things happening at the same time. I went back to university quite late. I was thirty four, and I was studying uh, literature. So there was literary theory, there was um, feminism, post colonial theory, queer theory, and um, a general. Uh, postmodernism. So this was something I had to study. It um, annoyed me uh, hugely. And at the same time that I was studying postmodernism, I was also having difficulties in feminism, which I had been um, really sort of de devoted to as, as a movement for um, empowering women for gender equality, but looking at it from a, a women, a, you know, women's perspective, and I was having problems over and over again with cultural relativism. At that point, at that point, I was um, still very much in the new atheist um, movement, and I was trying to support Muslim feminists and ex-Muslim um, feminist LGBT activists in in criticizing. Uh, abuses that came from interpretations of Islam. And this was made extremely difficult by intersectional feminists and their cultural relativism when they insisted that you just cannot um, criticize another culture. You can criticize um, modesty expectations placed on women in your own culture, but you can't criticize them in another culture. And it became more and more inconsistent, more and more difficult to address uh, what should be consistent um, human um, human rights, human rights abuses that women shouldn't have to uh, take subordinate positions, that people should be able to be gay and get married and love each other and, and be happy. And it was it just became absolutely infuriating and, and got in the way of any any what I would consider the empowerment of women. It's rather, it, it was producing a kind of victimhood, a kind of relativism that just made everything dark and ugly and, and impossible to, to get anywhere. Yeah, I have real problems with cultural relativism too. I mean, I also think that I find it misleading when people say that some cultures are better than others because I don't see why we need to view cultures in that way in the aggregate. I think that it's, it's some cultural practices that are better than others. 
Yes, I, I think there there are different zeitgeists as well, but it, it's um, generally not helpful to um, denigrate whole cultures. I, I think, you know, for example, I would not, as an atheist um, woman, particularly like to live in Pakistan. But um, Pakistan has a much better way of caring for the elderly than we do over here. They don't have the same loneliness problem. So, yes, there, there, there are swings and roundabouts, but I think that... Um, cultures which are more consistently liberal or individualist, which give people maximum freedom, are the best place to live. And I, I think people, there are secularists and, and liberals in every other culture. And I, I think it's my responsibility as a British liberal to support those wherever they are. Yeah, I, I mean, as, lis- as some of the listeners know, I uh, grew up in Pakistan and I have not been back since then. Um, although I... I love Pakistani food and music and um, dress and many aspects of the culture, but uh, but of course, um, I I believe in universal human rights for everyone, and those are not secured there. Let's do a little bit of um, disambiguating of what is what the book is about. Um, so you begin by talking about postmodernism, and then you. Um, you move on to a new development that happened around the 2010s. Can you talk about that development? How how the new theories, the new kind of branches of theory that have influenced various academic departments um, and contemporary politics differ from the original postmodernists, what they took from postmodernism and what they kind of left behind? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the original postmodern ideas, when they arose um, around 1968, they were characterized by a skepticism of meta-narratives, those large overarching narratives that aim to explain almost everything. And they wanted to dismantle these. This included Christianity and Marxism and also science and the notion of progress. They developed these ideas of power and knowledge as Um, inextricably linked. Knowledge was a product of um, ways of talking about things, of discourses which were set by powerful forces in society. They got to decide which discourses were legitimate and which weren't. Then everybody speaks into these discourses as though they are just true, as though they're common sense. And this is understood to um, perpetuate power imbalances. And of course, there's, there is truth in that. They, for the, one of the strongest examples is the way that homosexuality was spoken of as a heinous sin for centuries. Then it was spoken of as a shameful disorder. And now the discourse around homosexuality is predominantly, you know, some people are gay, get over it. So mm. there isn't any um, doubt that culture changes and the way we talk about things changes. But the postmodernists differed from the liberals in that while liberals still knew that um, language had this kind of power, and this is why they promoted the, the marketplace of ideas, for ideas to do battle against each other, for us to take everything apart and look at it, but in a productive way, the postmodernists were radically sceptical of actually making progress, of um, finding truth. Everything seemed to be seemed to them to be socially constructed in the service of power. So they were very, very complicated and they had a lot of different ideas. But it was these three, um, knowledge, power and discourse, that in the late 80s got 
kind of adapted and bastardized by a new wave of theories. So sometimes people will get quite cross with me when I'm speaking of... Um, people get cross with you? Never, Helen. <laughs> Yeah, they think that I, um, and they, they're right, that I, I simplify and um, the, the post postmodern thought, and I do. But the reason for that is that I want to look specifically at the ideas which have survived and which are affecting us now. Mm-hmm. So in the, about 1989, their, um, I mean, post-colonial theory had already started, but then there was um, queer theory, intersectional feminism, critical race theory was developing. All these theories um, essentially took these ideas of knowledge, language, and power from the postmodernists, but they wanted to make it more politically actionable. For the original postmodernists, it was just a matter of deconstructing everything, really, that it was sort of playful, it was aimless, it, you couldn't do much with it. So the next lot wanted to dismantle um, systems of, of power that existed mostly in language and kind of revolutionize on a cultural level. This carried on for about 30 years, developing and branching. And then in around 2010, we saw a real increase of confidence. People were were much more certain of the basic uh, claims of this of the, of the sort of second wave, that, that knowledge really is a construct of power, there isn't objective knowledge, everything is really structured into quite simple systems of power and privilege. It really does matter how we talk about things, we need to change the way we speak in order to achieve social justice. And so this really kind of concretized beginning in around 2010. And a lot of new books came out, which were much more sort of generic social justice, rather than specifically critical race theory or queer theory. And they were written much more simply, so that they could be digested and understood by people who didn't have a background in there. So we see somebody like Robin D'Angelo, whose book was a bestseller um, for months and has recently sold out again, uh, can be re- could be read and understood by a 10-year-old. And she is drawing very specifically on Foucauldian ideas of power and knowledge and discourse and socialization when she is claiming that we are all socialized into this system of white supremacy, of whiteness, and we need to all accept that we are inherently racist and work to dismantle the system that she insists we are all experiencing in the same way because of the culture we've grown up in. So this is now really, really simple. It's really dogmatic and it's it's causing problems because people can so easily grasp it and become inspired by it to, to try to dismantle other people's words, essentially, to, to call them out, to cancel them, to see society in a very systematic way that they can fight. But on the other hand, it's it's better for us because we can actually get at these ideas now. It's the, the old sort of obscurantist ideas and the, um, the language and the obscure jargon doesn't make so much of an appearance now. So we can look at what is being said and we can challenge it. Mm. I I remember, I mean, I remember doing, um, studying kind of postmodernism, actual postmodernism rather than the second wave stuff. Mm. And there was at that time this feeling that um, the meaning of text and language was kind of infinitely up for grabs um, because the author was dead Texts were, you know, the the meaning of text was in the eye of the interpreter, 
and their meaning was malleable, and you could read them strongly against the grain of of the author's assumed intentions. So, for example, I remember doing a a feminist reading of of Pope's um, poem, An Essay on Woman. And I think that that is the kind of thing, I remember also feminist readings of A Taming of the Shrew, um, things like that. This was, in a, in a way, we were kind of reclaiming the text. I mean, we were probably placing political interpretations onto the text that weren't already there. But we, the kind of claim was that Pope was being a feminist avant la lettre and um, without unconsciously and even against his will um, because of what was in the text. And now it's become, it's, it's, become simplified into this idea that, well, no, that text is misogynistic and problematic and needs to be removed from the syllabus and Pope needs to be cancelled. Yeah, it's it's become a, a lot more dogmatic. The original postmodernist, there was, I mean, there's a great deal of pleasure in there. If you're somebody who likes um, to play with language, to make um, connections which are, are counterintuitive, and to, to sort of dealing in allusions and, and connotations, there's a lot of fun that can be had. I had to do some postmodern readings myself, and I thoroughly enjoyed them. Although I felt the need for my own intellectual integrity to start off with a disclaimer, I. I don't believe any of this, but I'm being forced to do it. And I, th- I think yes, that there's something. There's not a lot of danger uh, there because it's because it's interpretive. This is what we do with texts generally. I remember doing. Um, a queer reading of Jekyll and Hyde, in, in which it was um, suggested, I think, by my my professor at the time, that um, the where uh, uh, Jekyll comes in uh, the back doesn't he? He comes in the back door and, and this is really all about <laughs> homo- yes, homophobia and, and that's what it is. It's it's about his latent homosexuality. So we've got a lot of queer theory mixed with Freud in there. And there's there's a certain amount of, of fun. To that I still prefer um, analysis of, of literature which sort of c- contextualise it historically, which actually aim to add um, a sort of re- research um to it to to explain what the writer was uh, referring to and what how we can understand this in the context of the time and place it was written that is more interesting to me but um, but the humanities really does have this flexibility for what is essentially thought experiments where it becomes a real problem i think is when they get accepted as truth when it comes into the realms of social engineering and then we get the real kinds of extreme consequences as i'm i'm hearing from people all the time now, now that I've set up this Discord server to help people who are in danger of being fired, um, is that the, the sort of whiteness um, dismantling training, the, the white fragility training, the anti-racist training, where white um, people are expected to affirm that they are in fact racist and speak about how they intend to dismantle whiteness. Uh, black and brown Brits are asked to testify to a very theoretically specific experience of racism. It's um, It really is quite dogmatic and authoritarian now and it's it's worrying me a lot more than it used to i i always thought it was harmful to the the humanities and to the social sciences and to, to feminism and lgbt activism but i i didn't think it could have um a real cultural dominance to the extent that it has right now this last sort of six months has made me less confident than i have been that we are going to push it back um, can we can we dial back a moment so we can 
trace, mm. retrace our steps. Um, so just outline for me again, what, what really happened between postmodernism and the kind of what you call, I think, the postmodernist turn into mm. the 2010s? Um, what happened? What what were the kind of principles that they most strongly took from postmodernism? And how did that impact academia? And then maybe we can talk about how that has spread from academia to a wider, wider political, socio-political context. Yeah, so um, our most significant changes, the original postmodernists uh, were not fans of identity politics. They didn't believe that um, knowledge could um, tie straightforwardly to identity in the way the next wave did. So Foucault and um, Derrida, even more, would really be rolling in their graves right now at, at the level of identity politics and the simplistic meta-narratives that have grown up around it. But there, there were two evolutions. And the one in um, 1989 was was most significant because the theorists said explicitly we want to use these ideas of social construction and we want to um, dismantle existing systems but we need to accept some objective truth it is objectively true that these systems of power and privilege exist once we accept that as objectively true then we can organize around it um, using identity politics in which uh, race, gender and sexuality are sources of empowerment. And Kimberly Crenshaw, I'm, I'm thinking of, and her mapping the margins um, specifically, she, she set it out most explicitly. They also wanted to, um, they, they were critical of liberalism and its attempt to open up the institutions and systems that already existed to everybody. They did. They wanted a reform. They didn't want a revolution. They just wanted everybody to have access to everything. The liberals as well. They wanted. Um, that they they wanted to take social significance out of um, identity. So that they've said, you know, you can certainly being a woman or a man, being black or white, can be important to you, but it shouldn't lead anybody to think you have a particular role in life. So that, that was the removal of social significance. The next wave, they came and they um, were very critical of this. They didn't think that it could work. They wanted to put social significance back in identity. And they wanted to add this to the postmodern ideas of power, um, constructing knowledge and perpetuating it in the way we talk about things. So this was a much more actionable um, form of just some, a few key ideas of the postmodernists. The best book for understanding this is um, the Fortana Postmodernism Reader because it was written in 1994 when these ideas, these few ideas were being um, solidified and simplified and sort of branching off. It, uh, it really kind of encapsulates what was and wasn't taken from postmodernism and how it was going to go and how it already was going. Then in 2010, it wasn't that anything changed particularly. It was just that with 30 years of scholarship behind them, there was a new increased confidence. There was less, they weren't as tentative or exploratory as, as the original, uh, as, the, as the next wave were in around 1990. They were more militant and they were more uh, prepared to claim um, this this sort of system of, of discourses as an objective truth. They distanced themselves as well from the original postmodernists. They called more on the black feminists and queer theorists who had used them without actually citing them. And so they've moved away from a scepticism of meta-narratives into a particular meta-narrative. 
which, which holds on to three of those core ideas. And the three core ideas, sorry, just list them again. Uh, knowledge, language, and power, and how they work together. I mean, there, there are, are other ideas in there as well about um, binaries and the need to break down categories, the idea of hierarchies and reversing them. But yeah, at the root of it, to understand if you are bewildered um, by what is being said to you by activists who are insisting that you must be racist or you must um, accept a certain idea of gender identity, then this is what you are seeing. You are seeing a conception of the world which believes that powerful forces decide what is true. They put it into language, which is then spread by everybody. And we need to interrupt this system, stop people speaking in certain ways, compel them to speak in other ways. And this is how we will achieve social justice. Right. It's this kind of metaphor of being um, woke. I mean, it is a metaphor that the, the, that the right also uses in a very different way when they talk about the, taking the red pill. That's a similar kind of metaphor. But in this mm. case, it's really about, partly it's, it's, about this idea that we are just kind of subject to forces beyond our control. Um, and just by talking and being in society, um, we become the kind of vehicles of racism and sexism and homophobia. And, well, um, I guess mostly nowadays transphobia rather than sexism or homophobia. Um, and we're just blithely unaware of this. And what you can do is kind of raise your own consciousness and become aware. There's something very seductive in that. And I, I am very glad that this, this word woke, which comes from African-American vernacular English, is a simpler version of what um, theorists have called critical consciousness. And this is getting the kind of consciousness which enables you to see the systems of power and privilege that other people are generally just accepting as common sense, that is, is the water we swim in. So there's feeling that you can now see what most people can't and that you can um, you can do something with, with what you see, which is, is really quite a theoretical interpretation. And there, there isn't any possibility of, of being wrong if you've interpreted it in, in the way, um, in, the, in the critical theory way. But this idea of woke is very much like, um, yeah, like the red pill, like um, having been enlightened, um, you know, having experienced the Holy Spirit. There's, there's something there which, which is a, a breakthrough, and it's uh, particularly for idealistic young people. I think there is this this thing that you can now remake the world um, at the basic building blocks, which is how humans think and speak. So tell me about how this is beginning to impact um, wider society and politics. Let's let's look at some examples um, of this breaking the bounds of academe. So we hear um, and we we see some uh, high profile examples. Obviously, we we saw what happened in Evergreen College when the ideas of Robin D'Angelo um, became accepted, and then Brett Weinstein um, objected to a day of absence in which white people were supposed to um, exclude themselves, uh, then we, we saw a really nasty and frightening situation um, take off where activist students um, really sort of took 
the the whole campus hostage. They couldn't have graduation there because there was this kind of fire of, of righteous um, fury that somebody had challenged um, this understanding of how race works. We saw that as well in um, when the, the Ravelry knitting <laughs> circle, that the, uh, the community there, somebody had made a comment about being excited to go to India and it was like going to Mars. And then somebody else came in and said she's, how racist right. this was. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to use my Indian credentials to say <laughs> that really feels quite correct sometimes. Mm, but but you see how the, how this wokeness happens that the woman saying this who is a, a middle-aged woman who is really excited and positive um was ex- chose bad language according to to this kind of theory to express her her excitement at, at living at staying in such a different culture because of the way the theory works this had to be problematized because she was confused by this i think and didn't immediately say I, I apologize, thank you for educating me. Uh, then it, it escalated with other people um, becoming involved, people trying to defend, other people jumping into the attack. I think uh, one man who was um, influential in the community ended up in a psychiatric hospital after um, being suicidal. And it, it was a, a horrible mess which really didn't need to happen. At the most, somebody could have said, do you think um, Indians might feel... Um, a bit offended if you said that, and uh, perhaps you would have said, "Oh, yes, maybe I won't say that to them." <laughs> you know, but the the kind of reaction that we get, we see it as well in young adult books. P- uh, authors have been sort of withdrawing their own books because readers who have been reading it in this critical way, the critical way is a, a dismantling way, are looking for those power structures. They're sure they must be there, and however they have to torture the text to find them, they will find them. So really, you know, promising young authors who have actually tried to write um, within this this kind of thought have had to withdraw their books because they have made some kind of, of error and, and, um, and said the wrong thing, which is with the speed that things change, it is almost impossible not to do that. Mm, mm. I mean, one of the problems that I have, one of the big problems I have with social justice um, thinking uh, this theory influenced um, thinking is uh, the kind of opportunity costs of focusing so extremely on identity and language rather than on material circumstances, and that's one of the the uh, one of the most frequent questions that people asked me when I uh, said that I was doing this interview was how this differs from Marxism. So there's this kind of, I hear constant insistence that this is neo-Marxism or cultural Marxism, and I know that you disagree with that point of view. Do you want to outline for us um, what you see as the distinction and why that fusion has arisen? I I think a lot of people, when they're talking about social justice as as an evolution of Marxism, what they mean and where they are incorrect is that they see it as a straightforward shift from the Marxist idea of an oppressor and oppressed group uh, on from the area of class and economics and into the realm of identity. That isn't how it happened. So Marxists um, still exist. They still uh, accept objective truth. They still accept the value of um, dialectic, of debate. And they don't understand power as something that is rooted in language and spread through 
um, all of society. They see it quite straightforwardly as being um, being asserted by dominant um, wealthy groups onto the, the working class. So there's a, a great deal of difference there. There is um, there there is a link. I would say that they they have a common ancestor, for example, in Hegel, but they also have. Um, a, a kind of bridge. So we weren't going to talk about the um, critical theorists of the Frankfurt School or the, the ones who actually called themselves at times cultural Marxists or neo-Marxists or post-Marxists because they looked more at culture than at class. But we have some ideas from them. So we have um, Marcuse, his ideas of um, sort of repressive tolerance of taking over institutions. This was taken up by um, the new left in ways that he he didn't approve of, but this the spirit of Marcuse went into the new left, and this was something that was um, adopted within intersectional feminism, within critical race feminism. So there's a spirit there, but almost no citations. It's not Marxism. It's not about class. It's about um, revolution and taking control of institutions, but it, it's not about class. It's not Marxism. And then we have um, the idea of hegemony, which came from Gramsci, who was in this, who was also sort of a, a post-Marxist type. And he um, developed the concept of hegemony as, as an idea which gets great social importance to the extent that it... Um, that it sort of overwhelms any other uh, sets of ideas. So this is uh, a very adaptable into a postmodern view and a social justice view. So people who want to point out that there are links, that there is conflict theory, that there is false consciousness, and that there is um, this idea of this revolutionary spirit, yes, that's fine. But I am trying to discourage people from taking a simplistic view where they believe either that um, that social justice is just an expanded form of Marxism or, which happens quite often with Americans, they think social justice is a shield for Marxism and that at some point people have stopped going to go on about um, microaggressions experienced by black CEOs and seize the means of production. That's that's not going to happen. <laughs> it really is quite um, quite oppositional, the, the Marxist and the postmodernist. Mm, mm. So I want to, I, I, I'm, I'm going to ask you some of the questions that people have asked from Twitter. Okay. Because I have to confess that I always have the, I have a, a slight issue with getting my brain around the theory. And I think uh, putting the questions might help to clarify things better. Mm. Um, uh, but by, um, from uh, um, uh, Sam, um, my Twitter follower, he asks, you focus on the more extreme aspects of critical theory in your book, Fat Studies, etc. What is, in your view, the influence of Foucauldian philosophy in more standard fields like sociology, educational research, etc.? That that really is uh, a good question, I'm sure. But the I'm afraid I'm, I'm probably not the best qualified person to answer it. I, I see the influence of Foucault in more, um, in, generally in history a bit more, to be honest, so looking at the changes of, of how power um, power and, and discipline works. I, I see a lot of that happening. I see much more um, moderate uses of him 
in forms of discourse analysis which um, aren't either radically sceptical or identitarian. But the kind of scholarship that I have been reading really is um, very much in the realms of of cultural studies. So I, I think you'd need somebody else who wanted to defend Foucault in in the realms of um, sociology or or something to to do so. I'm not seeing anything that is really worrying me from fields outside this particular um, kind. And and if if it was happening, I I think I would. (laughs) So the fields that you are concerned about um, are the studies fields. Um, I mean, some of them are also studies is also kind of a concentration within more within more conventional fields? Yeah, it, it's an approach rather than a field. So when, when we did our, our papers, um, we published one in social work, we published one in geography. Now, this doesn't mean there's a problem with social work or geography generally, but when it came to feminist um, geography, there was a problem in that particular journal because there was an acceptance of this kind of um, critical theory that, that drew on... Um, critical race theory and queer theory to the point that it, it was ludicrous. It, it was it was so ludicrous that our our paper arguing that we looked at dog genitals and then declared a rape culture to exist using black feminist criminology didn't stand out to anybody as particularly odd. So yeah, there's um, it, it's an approach. And after we'd done this project, um, a materialist. Um, a feminist geographer. That's um, one who is looking very empirically at um, how uh, government, law, and economics are affecting women in various parts of the world. Uh, got in touch with us because she'd had uh, grave concerns about her own work being undervalued by being associated with this particular approach. So sometimes we see in sociological journals something which is really um, postmodern. It, it's just, it's that social justice theory. It's got those assumptions. It started with its conclusions. It's theorized its way to them. It's not worth a great deal. But this doesn't mean that this defines sociology. And sociologists who are empirical, rigorous, data-based are, are still very much in evidence. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, so Rod, Rod Graham has a question, which I'm going to, um, I'm going to kind of Split his question into two. Well, I'm I'm going to give a gloss on his question because I think there are two parts to the answer, or, or to the answer that I'm interested in. Rod asks, "How confident can we be that an analysis of critical theory as theory is replicated in critical theory as practice?" Um, and I know that this is also the central, um, this the kind of central question that. Um, Andrea Lynn Lewis and um, Liam Kofi Bright explore in their letter exchange on critical race theory, which I will link to in the show notes, um, which is basically um, Liam says that you should judge critical race and all these other theories by the theory and not by the practice. Andrea argues that, no, you should judge them by how people are interpreting them in everyday life and in their normal interactions and how they are being used socially rather than what the academic stuff is. So maybe um, in Rod's question, we could think about how this is influencing first kind of our interactions with each other and secondly, how it's affecting people in the workplace in particular. Yeah, and I think we have to 
understand that ideologies happen on different levels. So um, if we have a situation where, say, a a dominant ideology in society is Christianity or Islam, the holy texts and the sophisticated theologians who are looking at them are not going to look exactly the same as the devout believers who are less educated, who are living their their practice. So this this can be very different, difficult, and then you get into tedious um, arguments with theologians who will say, for example, that um, female genital mutilation and jihad is absolutely nothing to do with Islam. And then you can either go back and um, and show the what's in the four um, schools of jurisprudence. You can show the hadith, or and I'll make this argument. But I think generally it's better to accept that ideas evolve and they operate on different levels. And we really need to look at what is happening right now and what is affecting real people, rather than going back to um, you know what the the prophet really meant or the correct theological interpretation of the Bible, which is interesting and a, a, obviously it's it's of most interest to people who believe in the theories and think they are being misused, which I think Rod does and um, and Liam does. Obviously, that's a, a legitimate interest um, for them, but I myself would disagree with um, Foucault uh, and and particularly with Kimberley Crenshaw uh, on their basic first principles. And I would also disagree with a lot of the way the activism is shaping up, even though the theorists themselves would probably disagree with it as well. So Crenshaw has said that she's not keen on the way intersectionality has been memified and is being um, abused in, in society. And I have sympathy for her with that. She's not responsible for how people have taken her ideas and and changed them, but she is responsible for having rejected liberalism, advocated postmodernism and um, identity politics in the first place. And and this is how it has evolved. Mm. So how is this affecting people at work? Um, Because I know that you are talking to a lot of people on the Discord who who are being affected by these kinds of ideas within the workplace. Yep. I mean, the, uh, people are writing to me. There's a selection bias here because obviously people not being affected by these ideas are not writing to me about it. But I've now got 172 cases of people in imminent danger of um, either losing their jobs or for in most cases, they're not going to rock the boat. They want to try and find a way to navigate whatever um, training or affirmation it is that they're expected to make. So I think my my favorite uh, my favorite case and we 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 won this one it was a um young black guy and he was getting quite upset at work because his manager had sent out an email to everybody saying that he was white and privileged and that the whole company needed to really address um their white privilege now and and to talk openly about how to um, deal with it. And so people were doing this and they were sending these emails to everybody and they were coming to him. And he experienced this as really quite insulting. He felt like there were all these people who were saying, uh, kind of humble bragging, you know, oh, it's so not, it's so unfair that I'm so much more um, respected than you, that I have so many more opportunities, that I'm so much more successful. And he wrote a letter and sent it to me for, to review it, in which he was really angry. And he was saying, I'm, I'm a successful man. I've worked hard. I've done this. I am, you know, you're not better than me. And that was his experience of what they had intended to be a dismantling of white privilege. So I, I edited that letter 
letter uh, into something in which he said that this was quite insulting. He didn't. He wanted to be left alone to do his job first and foremost. Secondly, this ideology was counter to his own personal. Um, ethical system, which focused a lot on personal responsibility and dignity, and that he did not want to have to affirm it or have anything to do with it. And he wished that they would expand their understanding of um, diversity, equity and inclusion so that it wasn't just this. And he got a very positive response and they actually backed right off from the Robin D'Angelo approach. Mm, that's excellent. Mm. Um, yeah, I do think that that approach is very, um, it is in some cases, it's condescending. In other cases, it's also, I feel it doesn't encourage resilience. Um, and I am concerned. I don't know too much about this, just the things that I have read and heard, mostly whilst um, doing editing work. I am concerned about how it might be, how it's sort of used in schools, because I don't think it's a good idea to, for example, tell young uh, to tell some young black boy that society is completely, all the odds in society are stacked against him um, and that society is intrinsically racist against him. I feel that it is very, um, it doesn't encourage kind of resilience, independence, hope, basically. it's it, There's a kind of council of despair here. And there is such an emphasis all all the time on deeply embedded and kind of as systems and that are all pervasive and that are never going to change and that are never actually getting better. Um, that's that's my um, I'm I'm concerned about that as a kind of message to in in educational settings. I, well. I am as well. I mean, I think this is what um, Lukianoff and Haidt spoke to in the coddling of the American mind, wasn't it? How it's operating mm. as a kind of reverse cognitive behavioral therapy and getting people to catastrophize and getting them to read the worst um, sort of interpretation of everything and to, to feel quite hopeless. And it, it's really contradictory because within education, there'll be a lot of talk about stereotype threat. And there's, um, it's, it isn't well um, demonstrated, but the argument is that when kids are faced with stereotypes that they are going to be less successful, less intelligent, then they will internalize that and they will do less well. And this doesn't seem to work with telling um, yeah, uh, racial minorities and, and women that this is how the whole of society sees them. That's that's really quite quite disempowering. I think it is, though. I, I think stereotype threat has been debunked, that mm -hmm. idea. Um, and uh, um, I think uh, after this podcast, there's another podcast that is coming out quite shortly with Stuart Ritchie. Um, and that's one of the examples he gives in his in his recent book, Science Fictions. Um, Ooh, I'll of, be interested to hear that. Yeah, of an idea that's really been uh, strongly debunked. Um, I think there's a problem as well. I mean, what we're seeing at the moment, I've, I've just been um, reading um, a lot of Cornell West, and he does a wonderful job of synthesizing all the different kinds of thought that are happening. And uh, black conservatives at the moment, they are the ones who are making, particularly in America, so Glenn Lowry, Shelby Steele, are making the argument that, um, that you just made, but in a much more sort of um, politicized way. So they are 
um, concerned that there's a victim mentality which is going to be self-defeating, which is being placed on black people, that there are systems in society aimed to help them, which is actually going to prevent them from becoming uh, self-sufficient. And, you know, th- this kind of works. And I, I'm reading them, particularly Shelby Steele, and I'm thinking, I think his attitude, which is I'm going to succeed no matter what, I'm not buying into any of this, is actually very, very positive to have as an individual. But it doesn't actually address uh, the material reality. Mm-hmm. I don't think that you know every um, black person who has come from a poor area with a bad school and has not been able to to, stu- to study well and has not had all the opportunities can suddenly, by a sheer force of will, overcome all of those obstacles and be hugely successful. So I, I think some kind of balance of the positive mental attitude that the black conservatives are suggesting with the material um, support and, and sort of empirical um, studies done into what will actually help um, sort of a even up a playing field because we're in a situation, particularly you know, in in America where it's where people weren't allowed to um, succeed until two generations ago. We know that the, one of the best indicators of being successful is that your parents were successful. Mm-hmm. There needs to be some kind of social. Um, sort of programs in place to help people, but I, I just wish that the you know that the black uh, radicals and the black conservatives and the black liberals can could perhaps get together and and <laughs> have productive conversations about this. Yeah, I really, I really wish we could go back to. Um, or go back to, or go to. Um, I'm not sure we're ever there. Um, an idea of kind of helping people who are poor and in need of help, mm. um, rather than analyzing everything in terms of race. Um, so, uh, you know, what people need is affordable housing, and they need, well, I think they need UBI. Um, frankly, um, and they need free at point of use healthcare, and they need a good infrastructure with public transport, and they need bicycle lanes, um, and they need access to good schooling. In, instead, what we're doing is things like, you know, removing an episode of Monty Python because it has the wrong language in it. Because there seems to be this perception that language words have this kind of magical power. I, I think uh, so much on the left as well that the debate has been between the social justice left who say we must focus on identity and then between the Marxist left who say we must focus on class. And I think that the Marxists can be somewhat um, simplistic as well because you know sexism and, and racism and homophobia do actually exist and do cause people problems. And so some, something, you know, yes, we need to focus on um, providing people who are lacking necessary resources for success with those resources, which is much more of the um, sort of the economic left, the, the socialist left, which you know, I'm not saying um, specifically socialist, but that, that kind of focus on economics, that needs to, um, to be a priority. But we can't altogether get rid of the idea of um, of identity as well. I, I recently read um, Isabel Wilkerson's um, cast, and I read that with the expectation of, of hating it because on Twitter it had been presented as um, having um, compared current America to Nazi Germany. But that isn't actually what she's done. She, by looking at um, anti-Semitism before 
um, and in Nazi Germany and at Jim Crow and at caste systems in India. She's really done some quite rigorous scholarship looking at caste, which doesn't um, really fit either race or class, but is is something that has a bit of both and can lean towards one or the other. And I, I think that was... I mean, I, I disagreed with quite a lot of it as well, but I, I think there's something really quite valuable there that, that could potentially um, make a bridge between those who are focusing entirely on class and those who are focusing entirely on race. Yeah, I think I, I felt the same way about Akala. He, um, he's just known as Akala by his first name only. Um, his book, Natives, um, which is called Race and Class in the Ruins of Empire, um, oh, I've got that. Mm, uh, I haven't read that yet. It's a it's a memoir of him growing up black in the UK, um, mm. and I don't want to preempt it too much because I'm going to talk about black people in the UK with um, kind of black culture in the UK with Ralph Leonard um, uh-huh. quite soon. But and I disagreed strongly with a lot of it. For example, he really romanticizes China, and he feels that people's kind of fears of Chinese power are are basically xenophobia and racism which I think is, mm. um, which is kind of becoming an increasingly difficult position to sustain, believably sustain. But, um, mm. but there's a lot of the memoir in which he is, he's, he's just advocating a kind of solidarity between everybody who is economically impacted, who is um, experiencing hardship. And I think that's, that's quite valuable, actually. Uh, you know, there's a lot of very valuable stuff in there. I'm particularly, I mean, what I find most dangerous is in in this kind of belief in this in the power of language that has led to a lot of attacks on uh, free speech, which are obviously coming from all sides. There's attacks on free speech coming from the right as well. Um, I'm particularly concerned about this kind of right now in this conversation about things like the new laws that are coming into effect in Scotland, which will much more, uh, which will be much more draconian police, involve much more draconian policing of people's speech. Mm. And that seems to have been motivated by a real belief that the most important or the most damaging thing is not your kind of life circumstances, but what people say about you and the words they use to describe you and the the opinions they voice. And I don't mean to imply that speech isn't powerful. Obviously, it also is. But this is a very worrying um, authoritarian development to me. It is. I mean, you know, freedom of of speech is is valuable. It's it's not perfect. It it means that people can get very very hurt when a dominant um, idea in society is one that that holds that they aren't worth very much. And um, but I think the only way to actually fight this and and the way that that has demonstrably worked to overcome um, prejudices to the extent that we that we have imperfectly today is precisely that, is getting those ideas out there, having people speak them, have other people respond to them. And and this is how ideas have changed. I, I always recommend everybody Jonathan Rausch's Kindly Inquisitors because he argues this so convincingly using anti-Semitism and homophobia in, in America and, and showing how um, they had been so successfully addressed by rigorous arguments and not trying to shut anybody up. 
Of course, this is then people confuse this with the idea that um, you should be able to say something horrible, like um, that the Holocaust was a good thing, or that um, black people are all stupid or criminals, or, or something really horrible and hateful, because you don't actually want to ban it. That the, in reality, having such a horrible idea spoken, I think everybody must have the ability to ignore it, to not hear it, to walk away from it. But having people out there who can argue with it and people who can, we can see what these ideas are. We can see what their reasoning is. They reveal themselves to be unfounded in anything other than, than really hateful bigotry. And I, I think this is how they get defeated. So um, somebody asks, I'm returning to the Twitter questions, and I think this is a good question because I think this comes back to part of why these critical approaches are, are so problematic in academe. And the question is, is it falsifiable? And if not, why is it called theory? <laughs> okay, so um, no, it um, generally isn't falsifiable. This is not the empirical um, scholars. There's an awful lot of um, mind reading and assumptions. But um, th the word theory, uh, I mean, historically, um, of course, it, it did uh, refer to conjecture. It became associated with um, an explanation for an established body of facts in science later. In in the humanities, theory does tend to be one way of looking at things rather than a claim to objective knowledge. Mm, mm. Um, William Carpenter asks, and this is another kind of really fundamental question, he says, why should we take this seriously and not see it as just a moral panic? And by that, by, by that he means... Um, your your uh, critique of um, or or the whole the whole anti woke thing and the critique of these kinds of ideas. Why should we not see that as simply a moral panic? Is his question. Well, I think you know we can look at different problems in society and decide which ones we feel are most urgent to address. For me, I think uh, critical theory is urgent to address because it is damaging two things which are very, very important to me, which are the humanities and the liberal left. So people, I mean, the criticism we, we often get is that um, this really is just a few mad students, a few mad papers, the odd um, crazy activist, and it's it's not a huge deal when there's, you know, there's a, a virus and there's antibiotic resistance and the world is, is heating up and there's right-wing populism and nationalism all over the place. But this is essentially um, a whataboutism. And I think we have to look at how things are, are working and and look at problems specifically. If you are somebody who cares about the political left, if you want liberalism on the left to recover, if you want it to look more at class, if you want it to be there for the working class, if you want it to value objective truth, consistent principles of non-discrimination, we have to address these very powerful ideas that are coming out of universities. They're not only in universities being imposed on, on students, but they are also in corporations. We're seeing increasing numbers of corporations doing anti-racist training, which is based 
on a very specific theory. It's getting people to affirm things they might not believe and should not have to believe. We are there's cancel culture is is very real. People will point out that um, we tend to know about it when a celebrity of some kind has been cancelled and they're not actually cancelled. They're still they still exist. They're still in the public eye, but we don't see so much when. Um, other people, you know, people who are not in the public eye are having to self-censor. I have so many of them now who have to keep their thoughts to themselves. They have to learn what is the right thing to say, fill in their um, their diversity statements um, in the correct way. And it's it's causing a problem of, of preference falsification, as, as they call it. People are pretending to have the beliefs that they think they ought to have. They then tend to believe everybody else is also um, holding these beliefs, and it's getting harder and harder for anybody to say, actually, I don't think this is liberal. I don't think this is ethical. I think we need to oppose racial discrimination consistently. We don't have to um, assume that everybody is equally affected by it, but let's get back to the principle. It is both wrong and stupid to evaluate people by their skin color. Can we get back to that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think about the um, the announcement, the recent announcement by Trump about um, about taking critical race theory out of um, um, workplaces and Christopher Rufo's cam- campaign? Mm, I've I've just written um, an essay about this, which um, should come out at, at any time. Uh, and yeah, I I think that by Um, taking critical race theory out of um, federal training, I think that Trump has actually done a good thing on the grounds of freedom of belief because he has now made it so that people cannot be trained in believing a particular system. This isn't like um, data protection where you have to um, absorb and affirm and comply with a certain system. It's much more like Christianity, where you should be able to um, decline to believe it and carry on being Muslim or Hindu or atheist or, or whatever you are. So into the extent that he has um, prevented this from being imposed on people who have the right to believe different things, this is a liberal act and it's good. However, I have to admit I am quite concerned about the language that has come um, from the Trump administration, from its supporters, and from Trump. Oh, yeah, so bloody when hell. And <laughs> he said it's a sickness and we need to extinguish it. That doesn't really sound like a, a liberal defense of freedom of speech. When he says we need real history, not fake history, are we entirely convinced that he is the best judge of what even isn't fake news? <laughs> yeah. And when he's talking about patriotic education in which children will be taught to love um, their country with all their hearts, you, you can't help wondering how are you going to cover the enslavement of African Americans? That that really, you know, are, are we going to rewrite history now? We're going to replace one faulty ideology with another. Yeah, I mean, this this stuff needs to be optional, um, but it doesn't need to be extirpated. I mean, it's perfectly fine for people to agree with D'Angelo or to favor critical race theory or to take a theoretical approach to things. Um, mm. My only problem with it is when it is mandatory. Um, in you know, when it's seen as the only lens through which you have to address things academically, or when it's a kind of coerced ideology at work, um, because my employer, well, which is you actually, but um, my employer has no has no business um, knowing what I what I think about things, um, mm. if it doesn't affect my workplace performance and the way I treat other people in the workplace, 
you know, I could be in my free time a Jehovah's Witness and think homosexuality is an abomination. And it's nobody's business at all. I think this is something that gets mixed, missed as well. There's a lot of attention played to whether the implicit association test and unconscious bias training works and much reason to think it doesn't. But that does miss that um, vital point that, that you just mentioned. Even if it did work, that wouldn't give an employer the right to examine the contents of somebody else's brain and correct it <laughs> towards any ideology at all. While we might hope that nobody is homophobic or sexist or racist or anything, they do actually have the right to be. They can only be penalized if they use these beliefs to harm or discriminate against others. And the way to the way to prevent them from having those beliefs is certainly not to make them part of uh, make a more liberal, a more kind of egalitarian belief system, a mandatory part of workplace training. I can't think of anything more likely to put people off an idea than no. than to make it part of workplace <laughs> mandatory training. Um, I think. If I was to do a um, diversity training, which actually I might do, I'm, I might actually get involved in, in writing um, something like this, I, it would need to be inclusive. You know, at work, people have the right to, um, employers have the right to expect their employees not to be racist, not to be sexist, not to be homophobic in anything they do at work. But there needs to be an accommodation of a greater range of ethical frameworks for for this behavior and of understanding. At the moment, people are required to believe that um, they don't have agency, they don't have control of their own minds, they don't even know what their own minds are, as well as these theorists, and that oh. they have to accept that um, what they're actually thinking is in accordance with, with this theory. And this doesn't work for a great number of people. It, it doesn't work for conservatives who have a belief in um, in, in sort of personal responsibility or for Christians who believe in free will or for Marxists who believe that class is the deciding feature and they don't have these ideas of race. And it certainly doesn't work for liberals who believe that human individuals have got the ability to evaluate and reject certain ideas. Well, you know, I mean, I have to work with you and you have some absolutely heinous ideas about I'm food, right about absolutely everything, I'm afraid. Um <laughs> You really are not. Um, trigger warning. Um, for example, I mean, anybody of a sensitive disposition, you might want to skip the next few minutes. Um, but for example, why do you, uh, this is one question, this is the most commonly uh, asked non-political question that people have put to me. So I'm going to put it to you. Why? What has food done to you um, <laughs> that you mash it with such kind of violence into an inedible and revolting looking pulp. And I have even seen this in real life. I, it's taken a lot of sessions with my shrink to, to get over the trauma. But um, <laughs> at the risk of, of triggering my PTSD again. <laughs> I think that there is something, I, I don't know if this, this might even be hereditary because my mother, oh I've my just discovered, God. does it. She, she did it and when I was a child because my father didn't like it, but she does now that he's he's gone. But there's something comforting, I think, about a consistency of food. If you mash it all together, then each spoonful tastes the same. It's got this, it sticks to the spoon so you can stick it in a bowl and eat it with a spoon while you're working or reading or sewing or doing whatever you want. It just makes life 
easier and there's there's something sort of texturally pleasing about mesh. Since you said it might be hereditary, I'm not usually in favour of forced sterilisation, <laughs> but maybe, you know, Lucy should just have a hysterectomy now and then she can adopt. <laughs> well, Lucy well, her- seems to have avoided the, the mashing gene. I, I tried to get it, her into it by mashing things just a little bit, but she's, she's not having it. You tried to get her into it. I think um, we need to get social services involved here. <laughs> Okay, to return to less serious matters, somebody has asked, what is the killer answer, Um, this is what he says, to people who believe in um, collective, um, collective guilt? I, th- I think when you get those those kinds of questions, I think the only thing you can do is, is not be tricked into going um, just to answering it in their own economy, you know. So if if somebody says, "Well, who are you as a white person to say this?" or if they say, "You know, so men, you've been oppressing women for thousands of years, and now you're upset because we're mean to you," that I think you have to just at this point say, "I don't share those premises that you are that you have started with. I don't think that men as a collective are responsible for the historical and current abuse of certain men." I don't think um, all Muslims are responsible for um, extremists, and I, I don't think all white people are responsible for racism. And we we just have to try and set out that principle because so often when someone says something like "Who are you to talk about this?" or um, make some assumption towards your identity, they don't actually seem to even know that there is another way of looking at things where you can treat people as an individual who could have any kind of opinion whatsoever about his history and politics. Yeah, it's really odd the way that this has reversed um, because I, I remember when I was doing um, teacher training in higher ed, teacher training for higher ed, one of the things we were taught was about the burden of representation, which is that, mm. for example, if you are if you're teaching to kill a mockingbird, let's say, because I was teaching English literature, um, you shouldn't assume that a black student in your class, if there's a black student in your class who is from the South, um, you shouldn't assume that that student will therefore know more about slavery or be more interested in racism or be kind of more qualified to speak about the book than anybody else, because that is placing a burden on that student, a kind yeah. of expectation of expertise on them. And Um, you need to just see them as an individual. Um, And this seems to have become completely reversed. Yeah, this this is the the adaptation of of standpoint epistemology, which has happened in the realm mostly of critical race theory. So whereas, um, you know, there was a form of uh, standpoint epistemology on the materialist side, on the the feminist side, which... um, which wasn't quite what we're seeing now. But now within critical race epistemology and feminist epistemology, it really is a mess where you've just got to accept that certain people have a certain experience and a certain knowledge that is authoritative and you cannot argue with it. So there a slightest... Um, if you can make any effort at all to talk to a significant number of women or black people or trans people, you will immediately find that they do not claim to have the same experiences. They do not claim to have the same politics or the same ideas. And so what ends up happening is that the social justice activists declare the people who agree with them 
as the authoritative voices, while everybody else is trapped inside the discourse that they haven't managed to uh, get get themselves out of. So that's the charitable explanation. They've they've just blind to it. They've internalised racism or misogyny or whatever. But the unkind one is that they're um, trying to seek their own advancement um, from the dominant groups at the cost to everybody else. It's it's a really dark and ugly ugly situation. Whereas liberals, we we can say quite openly, I agree with the people in this group who have liberal principles, because we're about principles, not about identity. Yeah, identity politics just doesn't work. I mean, even (laughs) people who say that they believe in identity politics, with with some exceptions, so there are some racist people in kind of who are racist in all directions, especially, you know, more frequently towards um, people with darker skin tones, but um, there's all kinds of racism out there. That does exist. So there are people who just dismiss an entire group because of their identities. But most mm. people get het up about opinions. Um, um, this is a conversation that I was recently having with um, uh, Rod Graham, and I cannot remember now where this quotation is taken from, but it's one of it's, there's a classical quotation which is that what bothers people most is not what is not what other pe- what things happen, but what people th- other people think about the things that have happened. What <laughs> what you know upsets the most is people's opinions, mm. and that's just as true of people who are on the kind of identity politics side of things as anyone else. Um, they might say, "Well, you know, I respect the opinions of trans people." Um, but they don't. They respect certain opinions about trans people, which, you know, mm-hmm. is natural. We all have opinions about things. And they like it when people agree with them. And they don't like trans people like Rose of Dawn and Blair White because those people don't agree with them. <laughs> you know, that's, that's know. kind of normal. Um, we like the people who agree with us and who we get on well with. And their identity is, for most people, secondary to that even when we say it's not. <laughs> yeah, I, I th- this is something that we we really have to keep stressing. It, it isn't that um, social justice activists are listening to marginalised people and amplifying their voices while the rest of us are selfishly, um, you know, opinionating all over the place when we should take several seats or whatever. People <laughs> are consistently are you, um, agreeing with those. Are you calling those. me fat, saying I need to take <laughs> several seats? So just one seat is fine. <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs> Uh, this it's I mean I saw it once the the perfect epitome of this and it wasn't left versus right it was gender critical feminists versus um trans no um sex um sex worker supportive feminism so there was um there was one ground of feminists saying why don't you listen to women and they were quoting women who said they'd been horribly abused and felt pressured into sex work and they didn't have any other choices and it's a horrible exploitative practice that really harms women and then uh, comes along the the, the sort of sex positive as they call it um sex worker supportive feminist who's saying why aren't you listening to women and brings along a woman saying i find this empowering it's my body and i will do what i want with it i don't want any of you puritans telling me what i am and aren't allowed to do with my body and they just don't hear each other at all and the rest of us are sitting there going look 
people have different opinions. It isn't it clear that the, the issue here is is coercion or lack of um, other opportunities? The issue is not what women want. It's just oh <laughs> yeah that frustrates me too enormously and I also feel that people use it to have a kind of well they sometimes use it to make themselves supposedly unarguable with which never works like you can't argue with me because I am um mm. you know a disabled black trans woman that never yeah. works people will not be shut up <laughs> people <laughs> opinionated people like myself and I'm not the only one will not be shut up um, but also, um, no, I've forgotten what my second point was. Oh, God, this is what <laughs> happens when you hit 50, I'm afraid. Uh, it's all downhill from here. Um, uh, we, will, we will move on discreetly. But I think the other thing I wanted to ask you, um, and since I recently um, interviewed, I consider you a kind of whistleblower. Um, not that you work within academe, but um, what your doing, I feel, in the book and in the hoax as well, is exposing things that are, are going on um, on the inside. And I, um, having recently interviewed a different whistleblower, a whistleblower in a quite different field, um, Stuart Ritchie, I re I'm really struck by just the level of defensiveness with which you've been met and how threatened people feel by by your critiques um, mm. and oh, I mean whistleblowers do tend to be unpopular I think it was Majid Nawaz once said well you know people are always going to hate me because reformers are never greeted with roses chocolates and puppies yeah and and there's always the the danger that that en that enemies will use what you're saying to purposes you don't want them to. Um, of course, I mean that 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 can always happen, and I've come to kind of disregard that. I feel like the devil can cite scripture for his purpose. People who want to want to kind of misuse what you're doing can can always manage to do that, um, and we should just speak our truth and ignore what other people's aims and kind of things might be. Um, but. Um, what? Why do you think people are, are have? Why do you think that you've provoked a particularly hostile response? I, I think because it is um, such a sensitive issue, and it, it is issues that have had a lot of resistance from legitimately um, anti-equality forces. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we don't tend to see if if somebody um, reveals that there is a, a, a problem with medical papers, we don't tend to see them get descended on by a hundred people saying you just don't care about sick people. But if we argue that there is scholarship into social justice issues, which is really shoddy and unethical, that is often the first assumption that um, we actually just don't support women's rights or LGBT rights or racial equality or anything like that. But I think there's also a level of hostility towards um, me particularly, which I, I think is, I, th I suspect that I actually get more hostility than um, right-wing figures who are overtly sexist, racist, or homophobic, because I am arguing for a different way to achieve the same thing. And so the need to um, discredit me 
becomes very, very important because there is a threat there. If, if I say I think um, freedom of speech, um, consistent principles of non-discrimination, uh, you know, reasoned arguments, evidence, being kind to other people uh, is, the, is the way that we go, that we should go forward, is how we can improve uh, race relations and gender equality and, and all the other issues, then this is this is more threatening than if I actually said, yeah, well, nobody, you know, we, we don't, we don't want any of that. Sexism is great, actually. You know, rate racism is, is brilliant, but they're, they're not going to um, respond well to somebody who wants the same thing, but a different, a different way of getting there. So the imperative is to show that I don't want the same thing at all. <laughs> I think that there's also, um, there are also a lot of people on the right in particular who, who who just who kind of kind of thrive on all the loony leftist stuff, um, yeah. because you know their their aim is not to reform the left. Their aim is to kind of just show up the left and troll them at their own game. Mm. Um, they get very angry with me if if I um, if I speak positively or of ways to fix things. They get very angry. Yes, <laughs> yes, I've noticed that. I've noticed that too. Um, and I think when you said. Um, don't don't accept the terms in which people are framing their arguments. I think that's very important um, because I see really frequently um, people will say, well, who are you to say that as a white male or whatever? And the person will say, well, actually, you know, I'm a, um, actually, I'm a, queer gay man with epilepsy and um, <laughs> in a mixed race family or and, um, yeah. and that's just that's just playing the same game isn't it yeah um, and it, we don't we don't want to play that game we just need to to get liberals to be more confident to say I just don't share those premises that um, identity dictates what a person can talk about mm, mm. yeah Absolutely. Helen, is there anything that you have wanted to say that I haven't given you a chance to say? Um, I don't think so. Um, mm. Would you like to read another teeny bit of the book um, um, to finish off? Because everybody is asking me <laughs> to get you to read it. <laughs> okay. Okay. I will maybe... Uh, okay. I, I will will read the last little bit of the introduction then. So Ooh, maybe... Perfect. Entice people. Okay. This book then ultimately seeks to present a philosophically liberal critique of social justice scholarship and activism and argues that this scholarship activism does not further social justice and equality aims. There are some scholars within the fields we critique who will be derisive of this and insist that we are really reactionary right-wingers opposed to studies into societal injustice experienced by marginalised people. This view of our motivations will not be able to survive an honest reading of our book. More scholars within these fields will accept our liberal, empirical and rational stance on the issues, but reject them as a modernist delusion that centres white, male, western and heterosexual constructions of knowledge and maintains an unjust status quo with inadequate attempts to incrementally improve society. The master's tools will never dismantle the master's house, they'll tell us. To them we concede that we are far less interested in dismantling liberal societies and empirical and rational concepts of knowledge, and much more interested in continuing the remarkable advances for social justice that they have brought. The master's house is a good one, and the problem has been limited access to it. Liberalism increases access to a solid structure that can shelter and empower everyone. Equal access to rubble is not a worthy goal. Marvellous. Thank you, Helen. 
I was just going to say it was, it was good talking to you again, although I, I talk to you most days anyway. <laughs> um, yes. And by the way, if if you think the book is good in any way, that's clearly due to the copy editing. Yes. Uh, but yes. anything bad about it, I disclaim all responsibility. <laughs> I don't no, know. I have no idea who this woman is. I'm going to just walk <laughs> five steps ahead so they don't think I'm with her. <laughs> No, you you did tune that all up beautifully and, and um, sorted out <laughs> some of my convoluted, multi-clause, 150-word sentences, I seem to remember. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> um, could, could you read people um, Richard Dawkins' <laughs> blurb for the book, which you, didn't, which you didn't use in the end, but which is just too wonderful to go, uh, to go unheard? Okay, here he is. So Richard Dawkins, he he sent it back to me with, uh, sorry, Helen. (laughs) It says, is there a school of thought so empty, so vacuous, so pretentious, so wantonly obscurantist, so stupefiedly boring that even a full frontal attack on it cannot be read without an exasperated yawn? Yes, it is called postmodernism. If you sincerely want to understand what postmodernism is, read this exceptionally well-informed book by two noble heroes of the Enlightenment Project. If you have better use for your neurons and your time, stick to science. It's the real deal. (laughs) Grumpy Dawkins is my (laughs) favourite. I love him. (laughs) On that note, thank you so much, Helen. Yeah, good talk to you. And have a wonderful week, everyone. (laughs) bye-bye everyone thank you for your questions apart from the food (laughs) (laughs) you've been listening to Two for Tea the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor yours truly at ARIO We hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and 2 for T. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. 2 for T is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, Write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.